0: Ah, here comes the conspiracy theory Sommelier now.
1: Ah yes, a true peer when it comes to selecting only the finest, maturest of conspiracy theories. What have for you for us today?
2: I think you'll find this one particularly intriguing. The tale of Charles W. Hmm, Minty. Let's see.
1: Oh, I see Charles used to work for the Bill and Melinda Gates Corporation, looking specifically into how to miniaturize cell phones and inject them into people's necks.
0: Ooh, and he worked for The Lancet during the retraction of the Andrew Wakefield article. Advised to be rejected due to some issue over semicolons, I see.
2: This all looks very standard, though. I think you'll find the more mature stuff starts on page 23. Ooh, I meant page 42.
1: Ah, yes. Charles would appear to be a member of the Council of Foreign Relations, a Bilderberger, a Grand Mason, and... Oh, and a founding member of the Priory
0: of Sion. No, this Charles character looks to be the full Sticky Wicket. This is fine work, Brian. Yes, Charles seems to be the product of a set of some of the most mature conspiracy theories around. Now, can I interest you in, as a digestive... A series of false flag events,
2: some of which have been endorsed by Alex Jones.
0: Mainline them straight into my cerebral cortex, my good man. The Podcaster's Guide to the Conspiracy, brought to you today by Josh Edison and Dr. M. Denton. No my how and welcome to the podcaster's guide to the conspiracy I am Josh Addison in Tāmaki Makaurau and they are Dr M. Dentith in Kiriroa, both of us in Aotearoa New Zealand Kia I'm pretty, ora. Sure it's, pretty sure it's Māori language week so have a bit of that Yes Hello. yes uh, I, it is you are quite right I'm afraid that's basically all I've got for you um now uh once he, I I think we 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 shouted out To uh, Charles, our new patron last week But I don't know if we actually mentioned his name Because we were saving it for the sketch So now you've been officially introduced As the latest member of the grand conspiracy uh, Whose threads we are still unravelling
1: And yet somehow, even though we're trying to uncover Your dastardly plot You are financing the investigation This conspiracy runs very deep And we still don't know exactly what the end goal is, but we will find out, Charles and Co., if it mm. that is indeed your set of real names, which it may well be, or maybe it may oh. not it may not be. I mean we that's don't know internet. whether people use real names on the internet at all. I mean, mm. is your name really Josh Addison? Or is it Ash Jodison?
0: You yeah, know it is Josh Addison. Uh, literally that's it. No middle name. I suppose Joshua there we go, if we're gonna be See your entire life is pedantic. a lie yep my life is a lie now. um this is a week of the month in which we would normally do a conspiracy theory masterpiece theater, but we're not going to for two reasons uh one, M has recorded a very interesting interview with Brian Al and two, I started reading the paper that we're going to be discussing in this week's conspiracy theory masterpiece theater, and it's quite something. Um and I realized I was going to need a considerably greater run-up, I think, to give it give it the full attention. So we'll do that maybe next week. Unless we do maybe. the news next week. I mean, so because of the way that we've been playing around with our schedule, mm. technically
1: next week should be the news episode. And we didn't do a news episode last month. So we probably should do an episode probably. this month about the news. But at the same time, kind of feels like the news is kind of always the same. It's it poisoning yeah. from Russia. It's COVID-19 conspiracy theories. It's Trump doing what Trump does best, to the point where news episodes don't seem particularly exciting in the age of COVID-19.
0: Not superly newsworthy, no. Or at least they would be in any other time and place. But we don't live in another time and place. We live in this time and this place. Unfortunately, that's that is the case. Time
1: and space is the place that we are stuck in.
0: Unfortunately. Um, so we might as well make the best of it, and I think the best we can do at this time is a thoroughly delightful interview uh, featuring our own Dr. M. Dentith, uh, and, of course, uh, Brian Keely, who, again, I don't know. Is he a doctor? Is he a professor? I know the titles work differently in, a, in the States anyway. Brian has a professorial
1: role at Pitzer College. In the lovely LA Although I say the lovely LA, I believe it's currently on fire
0: mm. I, I feel I should just make up my own title anyway So Lord Chancellor Brian L. Keeley uh, spoke with, with Dr. Dentith. Uh, well, see, how I about don't, I don't get say? a
1: special title, just Brian oh, okay.
0: Fine um, Oh, what should you be? Uh, I already said Lord Chancellor Chancellor of the Exchequer That's a good one. Oh, that's the role that Stickle had before his
1: unfortunate demise mm. in Glasgow
0: Although the best ones, of course, are the shadow ministers. Really, you really should be sort of, you know, the the shadow minister for stuff. The shadow minister know. of the pri- of the pri- privy closet. Mm, that'll do. Whatever that was, uh, you were it. Brian was also a different thing. You spoke. That that sounds like an intro to me. Yes, I think we'll just play a chime now and let the interview unfold in real time.
1: week i'm talking with brian al keely who not only has made a number of appearances on the show but is also a long-term patron of it Brian and I have known each other since 2015 when we met at the University of Miami's Conspiracy Theory Conference and have become good friends since. Brian is also, along with Charles Pigden, one of the first philosophers to talk about conspiracy theories post Karl Popper. And recent events, along with our episodes of Conspiracy Theory Masterpiece Theatre, have made me revisit Brian's seminal 1999 paper of Conspiracy Theories. Brian's discussion of mature, unwarranted conspiracy theories is something I think is ripe for reintroduction into the discourse. So let's start there. Hello, Brian. How are things in the City of Angels?
2: Hello, M. Thank you for having me on. I uh, always enjoy the, the podcast and I'm happy to be on today. And it's actually a little bit post-apocalyptic here in uh, Los Angeles. Uh, I'm out in the eastern part of the area. We're having uh, not only fires, but also Santa Ana winds blowing. So as I speak to you, uh, kind of a uh, fine ash is uh, falling along outside, uh, and uh, the sky has got a, a nice reddish kind of uh, uh, post-apocalyptic sunset look to it. So it uh, seems appropriate enough uh, to talk about conspiracy theories and in the midst of the uh, the climate meltdown that we seem to be having this week.
1: Yes, 2020 has turned out to be a very interesting year. There was that brief moment we also had murder hornets on the agenda. But luckily that seems to have gone away. Now we've got our respective elections to look forward to.
2: Yes, and uh, something tells me that the elections won't be the end of whatever they bring about, so... It'll be. be the, at least in our case, the post-election will probably be as interesting, if not more interesting, than uh, the pre-election. Yes, as I've been pointing out to a
1: lot of people recently, the issue for those of us who live outside of the United States of America is that if your election is contested, which I think it's going to be, what do jurisdictions do when there's a president in the North and a president in the South? especially when, if one of those presidents is Donald Trump, he's not going to be very kind to any nation-state. That doesn't automatically recognize him as the preeminent, the best, and the biggest president of the people of the United States of America.
2: Yeah, and the last time we had two presidents, that went so well. So you know, not not much to worry about there at all.
1: No, no. I mean the, the 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 history of the Confederacy. No one knows about that. It had no effect upon American history in any way, shape, or form. Yeah, yeah. That's uh, that's a disturbing thought. Let's not go there, and let's go all the way back to the past and talk about your nineteen ninety nine paper of conspiracy theories in which you were interested in the class of unwarranted conspiracy theories which continue to persist sans good evidence what you call the class of mature conspiracy theories now would you care to give us a gloss on what these are and why they matter
2: yeah my the original motivation for writing that paper was this idea that it you know it seemed like there were conspiracy theories that did not merit much uh consideration they were you know f- you know call them unwarranted call them uh you know by many other names most of which were pretty pejorative that uh and and it seemed that that's that the pejorative terms that were used to describe them kind of reflected particularly the kind of uh academic approach to these things that they really just weren't worth our time and and what struck me about that was this idea that that it's not really clear how to dif- 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 distinguish them from one another, right? Now, how do you distinguish uh, unwarranted conspiracy theory theories that we shouldn't give much credit to at all, against the background that we know that conspiracies do, in fact, happen. Right, and that there are also theories about conspiracies that uh, seem to be the sorts of things we should believe in. Uh, you know, be it uh, you know classic examples of uh, Iran can- Iran Contra in the United States, or the Watergate break-in. Uh, The Tonkin Gulf incident uh, at the beginning of the Vietnam War for the United States, not to mention examples that that you very much like to talk about. Pretty much, you know, any, most of our coup d'etats and uh, certainly all of our coup d'etats, but also a lot of our political assassinations typically are, uh, seem to be carried out uh, by groups of people conspiring. So there are all these cases of theories about conspiracies that seemed, uh, you know, good to be good theories and then there were also these theories about conspiracy theories about conspiracies about theories about conspiracies that turned out to be the sorts of things that seem to be laughable or or should be treated with derision and being a philosopher interested in distinctions as philosophers are i'm like oh well how do you distinguish between those two and uh and the original paper was an exploration into like well can we separate out the wheat from the chaff? Can we separate out the warranted ones from the unwarranted ones? And uh, to a large extent, the, the first paper suggested that that's not, certainly it's not as easy of a problem as you might have thought it was, uh, or at least academics seem to think it was given how little attention they gave to it, uh, but it turns out to be you know particularly problematic Uh, and, you know, and I ended up with a position that I think, uh, later scholars, you know, put a nice spin on it, this idea of particularism versus generalism, right? The idea that, that there is no thing generally that you can say about conspiracy theories that puts them into the unwarranted category or warranted category, but you can look at a particular conspiracy theory and say this one, yeah, this one's good. Whereas, "Mm, nope, this one, this one's bad, uh, and i think one of the nice things that uh came out of actually I, I enjoyed listening to you and josh talking about uh the the earlier papers your 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 masterpiece theater series because in some sense it's caused me to go back and kind of rethink those papers including my own papers and i and i think the kind of emphasis that you've put on it in terms of making it clear that the the account that i'm giving has to be one about mature theories as opposed to less mature theories I think it's something I wasn't completely cognizant of as I was writing that paper. Uh, Just the same as I think you two have also pointed out ways in which when you're talking about these things, you have to be really careful with your language and make sure that you don't just end up using the word conspiracy theory to refer to the unwarranted conspiracy theories that if you're going to be careful and say, okay, I want to take that general class and talk about the unwarranted ones and the warranted ones you need to be really careful to always, use those modifiers when you're talking about one group or the other. And again, I was not always completely clear and uh, consistent with that usage as well. So if I were marking my own paper, like a uh, one of my undergraduate papers, I would probably say, you know, inconsistent language use here, uh, be be careful about not slipping back and forth between uh, these different senses. Um, so, but yeah, that's the interest is is to figure out you know, what do we do both with theories that have been around for a while and how we should treat them? And it seems like we should treat them differently or come at them differently than ones that are brand new that have just shown up uh, two weeks ago. In, in your defense, we'll get back to the
1: discussion of maturity in just a second. This is one of, one of two papers post-Karl Popper in the discipline. So, I mean, the first question is, were you aware of Charles's paper when you were writing of conspiracy theories? if you can recall back to that state. I think so, because I'm trying to remember, I thought I
2: cited it in that first paper.
1: I think you did. It's actually subsequent scholars who are citing you and not Charles. Yes,
2: that has happened. Yeah, so when, you know, the the way the paper came about is I had, you know, uh, I had this idea for a paper about conspiracy theory. So, of course, I did what any, you know, I was a graduate student. You do what graduate students do. You go to the library and go, okay, let's find out who else has written about this. uh, And... Actually, I think what I discovered—I'm pretty sure—the first thing I discovered was actually Charles's paper because it has the word "conspiracy theory" in the title. And then f- from Charles's paper, that then led me back to Popper because in Popper, it's just a you know a short discussion in a, a book about something apparently completely different. Uh, and so it was really through Charles that I actually find the 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 uh, the reference back to Popper and and then that's about it. I mean there were just there wasn't a lot of other things out there um that uh and then yeah so I was careful to, to cite Charles and it was kind of striking to me too that nobody else had picked up on Charles's idea uh and you know and followed it along um and uh and and, and I tried at least chastise people who come after me to like if if you're going to talk about the history right it's it's really you know Charles was the one who got there after quite a long time, if you consider Popper being the first one to get there.
1: Yes, I suppose this is a question which is a bit hard to answer, but why has there been a lack of philosophical interest in these things called conspiracy theories between Popper and the open society, and all the way to the mid to late 90s, do you think?
2: Yeah, I think, well, I mean, I think there's, I mean, there's always, I think, a general worry about elitism in In uh, particularly philosophy, but I think in academia more generally, uh, that, you know, academics are kind of living in their rarefied world and they're not always uh, uh, down with the common person, even though some of them make much noise about the importance of doing that. Uh, But I think in practice, you see that often that doesn't happen. Uh, I mean, you see similar things of, you know, uh, gossip. Being a you know it, it's a human phenomenon, right? and it's an it, and it's a human epistemic phenomenon, but interestingly, you don't really see much people in philosophy picking up until the feminist philosophers come along and and they point to it not only being something that's maybe considered lower class or whatnot, but also gendered as well. Uh, that can't be used as an excuse for what happened with conspiracy theories um but I think a lot of it is just simply you know like I said, I think the attitude that I felt I was coming up against is this idea that it's just not worth, worth your time. You know, it's just obviously wrongheaded. And I think the reason I didn't fall into that in particular was because I had come out of a background in, in philosophy of the sciences and and in particular in philosophy of science around philosophy of biology with the debate It debates within uh, evolution, natural selection, creationism, what later then becomes uh, intelligent design and so forth, that there was this tradition within philosophy of science, particularly philosophy of biology, that said, hey, we need to take common sense theories seriously. Uh, And in particular, one of my professors at UCSD was Philip Kitcher, and he had written a famous book, uh, or at least famous, you know, within our circles. Uh, abusing science, which was his attempt to like, let's actually look at creationist theory as a theory. Let's take it seriously as a scientific theory. And, you know, at the end of the day, I think it's wrong, Kitcher wants to say, but you got to say more than that. Like, what does it get wrong? Where does it go wrong? Can you show me, you know, show me exactly where that theory zigs when it should have zagged and so forth. And where, you know, show me the actual flaws. You know, you got to, and if you're going to be intellectually honest, you need to do that. And I've been really impressed by that book by Phil because I, I mean, I like the idea of like, yeah, let's take these things on and, and, uh, and, you know, don't just turn up your nose at, you know, the kinds of theories that people on Sunday morning in, you know, parts of the country where people don't have as many college degrees and just say, oh, these silly people, they don't, you know, they don't know what they think and they're incoherent and, and whatnot. Uh, and instead say, no, let's, you know, they're, they're trying to reason through things. So let's see if we can reason with them and see, even if we want to say in the end of the day, it's wrong, uh, why it's wrong. Let's spell it out. And so that's, I think I also cite that at the very beginning of my paper saying, you know, that I offer this paper about conspiracy theories in the spirit of, of Philip's book on uh, on creationism. Like, let's take these things seriously and try to show what's, what's wrong with them. And of course, the kind of punchline was that I wasn't able to necessarily show what was wrong with them. It's like, wow, OK, unlike the case with creationism, it's not clear exactly how to answer these in such a way that makes a nice, clean distinction. Um, and and then and they there therein you get a, a bunch of other people kind of going to come along and show me that I was wrong. That No, no, you really can do it. And you get Steve Clark and you get uh, other people who come along after who want to say, you know, you know, step aside, Keely. Step aside, Pigden, we got this. And then uh, and then we've got that kind of debate going on.
1: Yes, I think it's actually quite interesting drawing that comparison between intelligent design theories and conspiracy theories. Because I, I think a lot of people do conflate conspiracy theories with your wacky pseudoscientific theories. And yet when it comes to the investigation of it, okay, so well actually no, it doesn't seem that it's that obvious that we can just be condemning of them sui generous, Because if we accept that conspiracies occur, and people have theorized about conspiracies, and some of them have turned out to be right, then we've got a problem, if not of labels, of the actual thing being investigated. Now, what I find fascinating about your 1999 piece, which Josh and I have been joking about, So many of the pieces don't mention 9-11 up until around about 2003, 2006. And I think it's unfair to chastise you for not mentioning 9-11 when you publish a paper two years prior to that event. Although I still think you should have had the... It's very charitable of you, I have to say. You should have had the forbearance to realise that event was going to occur, just like the CIA... You do use, as a rather interesting example, the big conspiracy theory of that time, the Oklahoma City bot bombing which had occurred i mean so that's that is back in 1995 95. now i'm, assu- yeah. I'm assuming i I'm mean ass- the publication date of, of conspiracy theories is 99 but i'm assuming given the way the academic publishing works you're probably writing it about 98
2: yeah uh, actually probably a little earlier than that i uh, wrote it i mean i think i really seriously started writing it in about 96 or so I started drafting it uh and uh, and I don't know I, I mean I, I don't know if I've told you the story of how I came to write it but it it uh, cuz that was not my area of study right I mean well there was nobody's area of study nobody was studying the philosophy of conspiracy theories then I was in I was doing philosophy of neuroscience so I mentioned I have this background in philosophy of science I was Uh, mainly kind of philosophy of biology, but I was really focused in on neuroscience and the philosophy of neuroscience. And I was working in a a neuroscience lab at the Scripps Institution Oceanography. I was studying electric fish and animals with weird sensory modalities and whatnot. And in the late 1990s, uh, philosophy of neuroscience was also a kind of an edgy sort of thing. And it was not clear at all that I was going to be able to get a job in philosophy using uh, philosophy of neuroscience as my area. And, and part of the worry seemed to be when you would send off your job applications and then you wouldn't get any nibbles and then you would kind of use your sources and your your boss's sources to figure out like why didn't, why didn't they pay attention to you? Is that one of the knocks against people that was doing work like I was doing was that, well, you're not really a philosopher, you're really a neuroscientist go go get a department and, you know we'd love you to be in our local neuroscience department because you sound like you'd be great to talk to but we don't want to hire you in our philosophy department because you're you seem to have split allegiances you're you know you're not a full on philosopher uh, you're kind of more of a neuroscientist. And especially given, particularly neuroscience and philosophy, there's a big difference in terms of the amount of funding that gets thrown at these things uh, and the you know, number of faculty at schools and so forth. Uh, you know, it really seemed like they were like, well, why don't you just go be a neuroscientist? There's a lot more money in that and there's a lot more jobs in that. And uh, that seems like the smarter thing to do. And I, I kind of wanted to be a philosopher. Um, and so I decided, it's like, okay, I need to write a paper that has nothing to do with neuroscience. Uh, and a paper that might get published in a mainstream philosophical journal and doesn't mention neuroscience at all. Uh, And so I went back through my dissertation notebook, my little notebook where I would jot things down. And I noticed that a couple of different places I had jotted down this stuff about maybe, you know, can you do an analysis of Conspiracy theories the way that David Hume did this analysis of miracles that showed that, you know, by their very definition, miracles are the sort of things that are just literally incredible, that they, they're always – any explanation that involves a miracle is always going to be unwarranted because there's going to be a a more plausible, non-miraculous explanation of the same thing, particularly with the case of historic, historical miracles, you know, where all we have is testimony of, of various individuals about what they saw – this person do or this event that happened and and i kind of got onto that of like okay let me see if i can work up a paper or not and that's what sent me to the library and and found uh charles's paper and go okay at least one other person has written and published a paper on this so it's not completely uh you know out of the blue but it also has nothing to do with neuroscience and um uh, and so that's what I set out to do, and it, and then all the while I'm sending out job applications about you know philosophy of neuroscience, and and then when I I got that paper published, that uh, uh, it, it turned out it's like great you know I've got a paper about philosophy of biology and a philosophy of biology journal and now i've got a paper that has nothing to do with biology nothing to do with neuroscience and it's published in journal of philosophy which is a mainstream you know you know nothing sciencey about it kind of, of journal so really see i'm really a philosopher uh and i, I want to do these things uh and and I, at the time I thought it was going, you know, and then I got a job <laughs> finally it took me five years. Uh, but after bouncing around a couple of postdocs, uh, and, and, uh, other positions, I landed a job where they seemed to want me to do philosophy and neuroscience. It did, it did eventually pan out, but, uh, but then other people started picking up on this idea and, you know, Lee and Steve and other folks that were like wanting to tell me why I was wrong or why, you know, there was something more interesting going on here. And Charles got back into the game as well. Um, uh, and so it's it's still kind of my uh, you know not my day job as it were. I, I, I could still consider myself a philosopher of science, philosopher of neuroscience is my main thing. But uh, it does seem like uh, there's still plenty of mileage to be had in in uh, the study of of the philosophy of conspiracy theories. So I don't know if I actually yeah, answered your question, but yeah,
1: no, 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 it's a great answer. But I'd say especially given the current moment, whether or not you accept the polling data, which indicates may maybe. Conspiracy theories are no more common than they've ever been. Mm-hmm. It's certainly with everyone talking about the same conspiracy theory at the same time, COVID-19 conspiracy theories, everyone is suddenly
2: very interested in what any academic has to say. Yeah, and that's certainly that the things have blown up in terms of that interest. Um, but no, I now realize the other thing I was going to say when you were asking specifically about the uh, the uh, Oklahoma City bombing uh, yeah, so I end up, you know, the the thing I always cringe about the most when I read that paper now is I make that claim, which was a true claim that this was the largest act of, uh, or the, great, the greatest death toll from an act of terrorism on American soil ever, uh, which in 1999 it was, uh, you know, soon to be eclipsed, unfortunately. But um, but my, because I was coming at it from this background in philosophy of science and philosophy of neuroscience, one of the things that I how is a kind of general rule of how I want to do philosophy is that whereas philosophers like to work a lot with thought experiments often, right? Fantasy fictional stories that they can you know use as an intuition pump to use Dan Dennett's views. Uh, I was one of those philosophers who thought, well, when you can, if you can use a real case, right? Uh, even though it's often messy and, and it's not as clean as a nice thought experiment might be uh, that there's some value to kind of really, looking at actual cases of things when you're looking at them so look at and see what actual creationists say about their theory if you're going to critique creationism uh don't kind of make up a a fake creationist who has fake creationist ideas in order to draw some distinction and so in 96 or so when i'm looking at this as you point out it's like just the year before there had been this bombing and I would see books, you know, Black Helicopters Over America, and I would see different the, – the internet was still pretty young then, but but you would see people writing about this particular uh, event in these kind of conspiratorial sort of ways. And so not not coming from a background – you know, I was not a JFK, you know, assassination person more than the average person. I uh, knew about Iran-Contra, but, you know, didn't – you know, it, it just – wasn't there. I wasn't, you know, I wasn't interested in the landing as a moon hoax sort of thing. So this was like, okay, I just got to go out and find out about something. So then I pick this because, hey, there's lots of people publishing about it right now. It's it's a topical thing at the moment. And so that's why I kind of latched on to, uh, I think it was Jim Keith was the person who had published a number of books and then published a book about particularly the Oklahoma City bombing. And then I'm like, great, now I've got, I'm not going to be making stuff up. I'm actually going to, you know, let's look and see what you know the Turner Diaries say. Let's look and see what uh, Ke- Keith has to say about uh, this uh, this event, and then that way I can you know you know engage with it the same way that say David Hume engaged with what people actually said about miracles and what miracles they actually uh, attributed to people. Um, although as I we were noting before, it had the effect that that's a wait that's not a mature conspiracy theory at the time. Um, so. And I, I think that was because I wasn't thinking so clearly about mature versus new, uh, and uh, and that's why I ended up, you know, probably should have made it a little more clear in the paper that, you know, this is an example, but maybe I should have picked something like JFK uh, assassination. Maybe I should have picked something like the Tonkin Gulf or something where it was further back in history such that then I could uh, analyze it. But, you know, that's that's the case I picked.
1: It's actually on a, on a side note, and this is going to be one of those snide comments that you and I will get. The idea of making up a conspiracy theorist to discuss a conspiracy theory, a la what Kassam Kwasam does in his work, seems like the wrong way to approach it. Why not actually look at what people say and analyze that rather than make up fictional conspiracy theorists? Go, well, look, my fictional conspiracy theorist is absolutely irrational. Thus, belief in conspiracy theories must be irrational as well. Okay, so that doesn't follow that just because Sherlock Holmes was a bad detective, that doesn't make all detectives bad. so yeah so you know i mean focusing on the kind of maturity aspect because yes there is that worry that especially if you say you wrote the paper in 96 one year after the oklahoma city bombing it's quite hard to think of those theories as hitting maturity there and yet this is the point where i find myself going I kind of agree with you, I find myself thinking a lot about COVID-19 conspiracy theories. Because many of them seem like mature conspiracy theories, despite that most of them are barely over six months old at best. And this is because, as I keep on commenting with people in the media who ask me about these, most of these theories don't feel new. They simply feel like older conspiracy theories in which the crisis has been replaced with what's going on with COVID-19, and that they are theories that are relying on archetypes, whether they are New World Order conspiracy theories, false flag event conspiracy theories, and the like. So what's your take on the crop of COVID-19 conspiracy theories? Because I want to describe them as being mature, in the same respect that I want to go, you were too quick to describe the Oklahoma City bombing conspiracy theories as being mature. Am I getting something wrong here, or is there something else going
2: on yeah i think i mean i I definitely see the 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 motivation for that for your move right that this, this these are this is old wine and new bottles in a lot of ways, and I mean, I guess the reason I push back is i I think partly it's part of what we're dealing with is is the COVID-19 case is interesting in a lot of ways. It's a lot more complex than say something like JFK assassination or, or uh, the Oklahoma city bombing where, you know, if you think about, you know, the least the, the way that I originally defined conspiracy theories, I wanted to put it in terms of explaining a particular historical event or events in, you know, in conspiratorial ways. And where there is a kind of a punctate event, like why did that bomb go off in Oklahoma city that after, that morning? Why did JFK end up with the bullets in him uh, on, on that afternoon in Dallas, All right? There's a singular event and then there's the explanations of it. In the case of COVID-19 it's, it's not really an event as much as it's kind of a phenomenon, right? It's like, you know, it's a pandemic, right? It's, it's happening over the entire world. Uh, and when when you look at it that way, it's all these different bits and pieces to it. So it becomes rather amorphous, which means that I think we can't give a singular analysis. I mean, you know, particularist or not, right? We can't even give a singular analysis of what's the event that's being described, right? So uh, in the case of COVID-19, right, there's, uh, you know, there's the, however it got into the environment, right so either you know you have these theories that it was either uh purposely introduced you know there's a there's a my hoply hop thing going on there as well did somebody intentionally create first of all did they intentionally create this virus and then if they whether or not they intentionally created it did they intentionally release it or did they perhaps accidentally release it uh and then there's you know did and then if you got that there's theories of like well i think the Chinese did it, or the American uh, the Americans did it or somebody else maybe the North Koreans did it, right? Uh, there are these kind of like punctate events where you can say, okay, was it a, you know, first of all, is it a bioweapon? Is it you know is, that the, is there an event at which this thing was created in a particular location in time? And then we can have theories about that. Uh, did it Was it introduced uh, intentionally or not in Wuhan uh, near the wet market? or not right and there's a specific event that you can you can point to but then there are these other aspects of it things like oh and 5g technology is breaking down our immune systems such that once the once any kind of pathogen is out there it's going to make it easier for it to be passed along and it's like okay that's less of a particular event um than it is a kind of like there are these cell towers all over the place that have this technology that that may have this interaction in a very diffuse sort of way. And I think it's those things are the things that often, I think, fall under your proposed analysis where it's like, well, wait a minute, 5G, we've been worrying about 5G as, consp- as con- there have been conspiracies around 5G for the last several years, right? And, and there's even reason to think that, you know, if you look at the the stories about the possible role of 5G propaganda coming out of RT and some of the uh, uh, the propaganda wings of uh, the, of Russia and, and other non-Western sources, is that they were trying to gin up worry about 5G. And then when, when uh, the pandemic came along, they just kind of pivoted and go, oh, yeah, this thing is actually connected to that thing uh, and kind of made this connection such that it really is an old theory at least it's more mature, it's older than the pandemic. Uh, it's something that people, and then of course you look at the 5G and you look and you go, well, people had very similar things about 4G. And if you look back there, actually people had worries about 3G. When the area that I live in they want is an area that does not have cell phone coverage uh, and it's a recreational area where people get lost. And so the local volunteer fire department and other entities would like, hey, it'd be great if we had a cell phone tower in here, because that would then mean people could dial 911 and call for emergency services. Uh, And other people fighting back against it going, we don't want a cell phone tower. We've heard cell cell phone towers have all these negative effects on health and so forth. But this was five years ago (laughs) that we were arguing over this well before 5G, well before even 4G. Uh, People didn't like cell phone towers and had theories about what was causing it so those aspects i think you're right it's like wait when you start wrapping that into it or if you say the person behind it is really george soros it's like okay we've been hearing conspiracy theories about george soros forever that is old wine just being repackaged in the new bottles um but i think it's because this is such an amorphous thing that we're trying to describe some aspects of it are as you say are can be treated as in many ways mature conspiracy theories we've investigated a lot of things, at least investigated a lot of things very much like this. Maybe they're different tokens of the same type, but we can make use of what we've learned about the general type in this particular case. But I worry that other aspects like, was it a bioweapon? Was it released in Wuhan either on purpose or on accident? It's like, okay, that's a much more punctate event. And I think that is not, a, you know, it still is a possibility, right? It could have been an accident in, uh, uh, in Wuhan. It, you know, I'm I'm less likely to, uh, think of it as being an intentional thing, but it's certainly the accidental thing. It's like, man, we, we all know accidents happen all the time. Um, not just because I've seen the movie outbreak, right? It's, it's like, no, it's, it's in general, you can find, re- again, you can find real cases where pathogens have gotten out of their lockdown. Um, so, uh, so I think it's a mix of things, but I think it's partly in, you know, bring in QAnon, boom, that's in here too. And that's like <laughs> things are, you know, now it's connected with American politics and whatnot. And it's so, um, so I, I think you're onto something, but I'm worried that this particular phenomenon is kind of the perfect storm of a lot of different conspiracy theories, some mature, some new, all kind of uh, being brought together.
1: Well, I, I absolutely agree. There is something quite interesting about the, Origin conspiracy theories where it is plausible to think, well, I mean, maybe there was a cover up of exactly what the authorities knew in Wuhan, and now they're having to cover up the fact that what they knew at the time, if they'd acted upon it, they would have done something about it. I mean, I've always taken one of the most plausible JFK conspiracy theories to be what if it turns out the security services had all the information they needed to go, actually, Lee Harvey Oswald is going to try to assassinate the president on this particular day. But they un- they underplayed it. Or went, oh, we, do- we don't think that's particularly likely. I mean, he's on our watch list, but I mean, he's not a serious threat. And you go, oh, uh, yeah, that's a, that's a bit awkward. Uh, maybe we should have done something about that. Let's just make sure that people never find out that actually we could have connected the dots. It's probably best to keep that under wraps and that seems like a fairly plausible claim of a cover-up there of people going oh we've been a bit incompetent we don't want people to know we've been incompetent so just keep that on the down low and you can imagine the same situation occurring in Wuhan oh we've got quite a bit of an outbreak here but we can get this under control and the world need never know and everyone will sleep easier at night oh oh uh Yeah, it turns out it's a bit of a pandemic now. Uh, Maybe we shouldn't have sat on that information after all. And they seem like plausible, particular conspiracy theories, as opposed to the archetypes we're seeing, which are your standard false flag event conspiracy theories or New World Order conspiracy theories, bringing about the glorious socialist revolution. Long may that occur. So, yeah, I think there is, you say, it's a perfect storm. There's a variety of different types and tokens of types here and some of them are plausible and need to be investigated and others can go that just feels like the same old theory i mean someone should still investigate them just in case they turn out to be true if bill gates is actually trying to inject microchips into the back of people's necks someone should check that and tell bill gates it's not going to be a very particularly effective way of tracking human beings because the the radius of that signal is going to be really, really small. So maybe maybe develop a cell phone instead. It's a much more effective way to track individuals in the wild.
2: Yeah, Steve Jobs is the real conspirator here, not but Bill Gates. Steve Jobs was the one that figured out how to get all of us to put a GPS tracker on our bodies. And the greatest trick that Steve Jobs ever pulled
1: was to make us think that he's dead. Mm-hmm. I mean, that Tim Cook person... I mean, it's quite obviously Steve Jobs wearing a different shirt. Yes, yes. Now, one thing which has come up quite a bit looking at the Conspiracy Theory Masterpiece Theatre stuff and just knowing the work in general is that you've been accused by Lee Basham in particular, and me to a lesser extent back in my book, The Philosophy of Conspiracy Theories, but I've kind of resiled myself from this view, as having the best defense of what Basham calls the public trust approach, the idea that mainstream media and law enforcement would cover and conduct investigations leading to public arrests, trials, and convictions when it comes to momentous conspiracies which he takes it are examples of these mature and unwarranted conspiracy theories. Now, what is your take on this? Has Basham got you right here?
2: Yeah, I think so. That was one of those cases where I, you know, when a number of different people misread you, then, or at least you feel that a number of people have misread you, then uh, that might mean that you should have written more clearly to begin with. Uh, What I feel like I was, the way that a number of people have read me, and I think Lee is one and, uh, and you and a couple of other people. Uh, so it's not just one person. Uh, is this idea that, um, that we shouldn't really poke too much at conspiracy theories and, and start to expose the, 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 the dark underbelly of, of what's really going on, because that would undermine the public trust, right? That, you know, that, that, that being too skeptical about conspiracy theories has this downside, which is it—you know just the same as trust in public institutions in the United States after Watergate dropped considerably, right? Uh, trust in the media went up a good bit, but certainly the trust in the FBI, trust in uh, uh, federal authorities and so forth went down. You know, that was a result of, of, of Watergate, such that if we hadn't uncovered Watergate, People would continue to trust those institutions, presumably. Uh, you know, there was also the Vietnam War, and a few other things that were going on there that were eroding people's trust. But that there was there's this way of reading what I did in that first paper that suggested that uh, that yeah that, that conspiracy that the that being too skeptical about conspiracy theories is bad because it's going to erode the public trust and that's a bad thing. Whereas what I took myself to be doing was kind of the, not the opposite of that, but it's, you know, it's like, you know, philosophy, we have modus, one person's modus ponens is another person's modus tollens. I think it was the inverse of the argument, which is that I was wanting to say that in order to take certain conspiracy theories seriously, you must already have discounted the amount of trust that you have in public institutions to some significant degree, that the only way you could, uh, take on certain conspiracy theories, uh, uh, particularly premature ones, as being even vaguely plausible. Is if you thought that the FBI was corrupt and that all law enforcement was corrupt and that the newspapers were corrupt and every you know nobody you know everybody's in on the conspiracy and nobody is in it for you know truth and beauty and all the things they're supposed to be. That the only way that you can take these conspiracy theories seriously is if you already have a pre-existing low public trust and part of the reason for pointing that out was to say well that then should lead you to say okay wait a minute i've got this theory that i'm trying to figure out whether i want to consider it warranted or not uh huh in order to say that it's warranted i'm gonna to have to throw a lot of things that that maybe i'm not comfortable showing distrust in like why don't i trust the you know the my local newspaper why aren't i worried you know why don't why don't i automatically think there's a much more Woodward and Bernstein's out there that are you know seeking the truth and they're on the job and they're going to uncover these sorts of things as opposed to thinking that well they must be in on it um and and so as a way of not saying that you shouldn't study conspiracy theories because it's going to erode your public trust but recognize that to, to take the con- certain conspiracy theories seriously presupposes a high degree of distrust. And well, first just acknowledge that. And then second of all go, well, are you really willing to go there? And uh and the 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 example that I brought up that, that's been kind of interesting when you look at a paper and you're like, what are the bits that have been cited later? What are the things that people have picked up on? One of the things that I was most proud of in that paper that almost nobody has picked up on was the, the little discussion about, uh, Robert Anton Wilson, where he makes this point that, you know, think about what it takes to believe, to t- really take seriously Holocaust denial, right? Uh, what sorts of things would you have to throw into doubt in order to believe that the Holocaust just didn't happen? So all those videos were, or excuse me, those, those films were faked, all those, um, Uh, All those people that gave testimony are lying. Uh, All the, uh, you know, even the, you know, the stuff behind Project Paperclip where we were secretly, you know, bringing former Nazis in to work on various programs, right? Those were all, that was even ginned up. We didn't really need to do that because those people hadn't actually done anything bad that needed to be covered up and and have a, a big program in order to make sure that we could erase the history. They didn't have to erase the history. The history wasn't there to begin with. But right, the number of things that you would have to call into question, according to Wilson, in order to really take seriously that the Holocaust didn't happen. Wilson goes, Why do you think World War II happened? I mean, what's your evidence for thinking that the entire war happened? And what's your evidence for thinking that Marilyn Monroe existed? Uh, or or any of these other things? I mean, if you're you know, what's what's uh, you know, if you're gonna be consistent right, if you're going to throw all those things into doubt just to show that, you know, hey, this Holocaust denial thing is really plausible, you you ought not be, you really ought to be a much broader skeptic than most people are. Most people go like, yeah, World War II happened, but the Holocaust didn't. It's like, wait, what's the separate set of evidence that's supposed to make me believe one of those things did happen, whereas the first one, you know, Walter Conkite didn't lie to me about one, but he did lie to me about the other. uh, And, and, and and the FBI lied to me about one another. It's like, be clear that the, there's a much broader kind of skepticism that might be involved when you want to make certain really broad sweeping claims uh, about big historical events. Especially, again, and I think you're right to point this out, especially when we're talking about the mature cases. Because there's going to be a lot less of that in the case of a new, brand new uh, uh, conspiracy theory. There's going to be, you know, you can, you much less trust needs to be invoked uh, if it's a new thing. But if it's an old thing, then lots of people must have been involved. Uh, And that's what I thought I was making, the argument that I was making back then. Uh, The way in which it's kind of come around is even though I didn't think I was making the Lee Basham uh, public trust argument back then, these days I wonder maybe I should have. (laughs) Uh, And it has to do with more of these kind of issues about the ethics of belief. and, And now we're seeing that, One's belief in conspiracy theories now had these, you know, used to, when I in the good old days in 1999, when I'm writing about conspiracy theories, it, there was something very kind of uh, it was a lovely time you could just hold a view and it was, you know, you could argue about it one now 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 at least to whether or not you vaccinate your kids or not, or whether or not you wear a mask in public, or whether you burn down uh uh, 5G towers and so forth. Now there seem to be real consequences to holding certain kind of conspiratorial views, uh, that, and also you harass, uh, reporters, you harass, uh, crisis actors and so forth who, you know, who, who claimed that their children have been murdered in mass shootings when, you know, you are convinced that they hadn't, or at least you just want to ask them a bunch of questions about it, uh, Back in 99, I didn't think that that was a, a really valid argument. I didn't think that was the argument I was making. These days, I'm actually tempted to like, maybe I should just like take it on board and go, I wasn't think arguing it then, but maybe an argument could be made now that uh, that there are consequences to entertaining even certain conspiracy theories, that there's a downside that just, I think just wasn't there as clearly in 1999 or 1969 or or before. Uh, but I'm still not even sure I'm willing to make that argument. It's just like, It just seems to me to be more plausible now or more interesting than it was in 99. Yes, it's actually quite interesting. That's the kind of argument that Pat Stokes has been
1: making with respect to his so-called reluctant particularism. And I think it is interesting bringing in that kind of weird disjunct between the conspiracy theories that kind of motivated the literature back in the late 90s versus the conspiracy theories we're routinely asked about now. Because, I mean, the project I'm involved in at the moment, the disinformation project, looking at COVID-19 disinformation and conspiracy theories going on in the build-up to our election. It turns out there actually isn't much COVID-19 disinformation or conspiracy theory out there in our local body politic, which is good. But the problem is it only requires a few people to take those conspiracy theories seriously, at which point they don't wear a mask on public transport. They don't engage in social distancing when they're at the supermarket. Maybe they don't even wash their hands properly, because it turns out none of us knew how to wash our hands up until COVID-19. I mean, a minute in the bathroom, that's unbelievable. Uh, And it just requires a few people to change their behavior, and suddenly they are a vector for COVID-19. And that you get community resurgence and transmission and you end up going, actually, there are, there are some notably bad consequences to belief in these conspiracy theories. And we do need to be cautious about how we talk about them. That doesn't mean we change our analysis, but it does mean we do need to bring in the ethics that goes along with epistemology. Now, I know I know Lee in particular will go, no, that's not the case because he's a free speech absolutist. I'm not a free speech absolutist. I think there are rights and duties that go along with, with speech. And so we do need to have those discussions. Yes, I don't think you're obliged to be an advocate of the public trust approach. I also think that the way that you spell out the story indicates that, you know, I mean, there's a much more nuanced discussion to be had about this.
2: Mm-hmm. Yeah, agree. Yeah, back in the old days, it was all just fun and games, but now conspiracy theories might kill you.
1: Also, I think there's another thing which I think is, which kind of motivated my adoption of accusing you of engaging in public trust scepticism, or what Lee calls a public trust approach, which is there are actually two senses of unwarranted that exist in the philosophical literature. There's unwarranted in the sense of it is not true, and there's unwarranted in the sense of it is implausible. And I think the kind of warrant you're talking about in Of Conspiracy Theories is the latter kind. What should someone believe given the available evidence at time t. You're not obliged to say the theory is false. You're simply going, look, if this theory has persisted in discourse for a really long period of time, and evidence has not amounted in favor of it, it's mature and unwarranted, and that means we should treat it as being implausible. It doesn't mean it's false. New evidence could come to hand, but it does justify your dismissive attitude towards it at that snapshot in time. Do I have you right there?
2: Yeah, and I think that's—I mean—that's basically Hume, right? I mean, or at least that's Hume on miracles. Uh, I mean, Hume had his own reasons for. M- Putting the argument this way, particularly having to do with attitudes about atheism and, and skepticism in the time that he's writing. But there's there's a sense in which Hume, when he's talking about miracles, wants to be very distinct about the epistemology and the metaphysics, right? Is he making a metaphysical claim? Is he saying that, you know, that that Jesus did not do these miracles? He like, you know, whether he did it or not, in some sense, I, you know, it's a historical miracle. Uh, it either happened or it didn't. I can't say now the question is whether now in you know 1720 or 2020 should I assent to agree that this happened right should I think that this is the best explanation of what happened uh in uh in the desert uh 2000 years ago him says there I do have an answer right it's literally incredible especially given what a what a miracle is uh you know, it is never going to have sufficient evidence uh, to be something that should be believed. But that just means metaphysics and epistemology are separated, right? There's no there's no reason why everything that is in fact true is going to be in the class of things that we are in a position to believe. There are going to be plenty of things which are, you know, I mean, the example I always give my students, right, is, you know, the, the number of hairs on the head of Julius Caesar's great, 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 paternal grandfather on the day that he turned 16 right 4362 that well maybe but presumably there's a number that is true that we we have reason to believe that person existed we have reason to believe that there was some countable number of hairs on there his head zero to some other high number um but are we ever going to be in an epistemic situation to be able to say you know yes this is the right number it's like, no, it's just going to, it's beyond our ken. It's, it's not something we can uh, can answer. But that's not to say that there wasn't an answer, right? It's not saying, you know, it's just saying that we're never going to be in a position to make that kind of claim. Uh, and I think in the case of conspiracy theories, uh, I mean, I think often we, and I think this goes back to this thing that a lot of people have pointed to that, you know, conspiracy theories, you know, there are conspiracy theories about really big events, right? There are conspiracy theories about the assassination of JFK. There are relatively few conspiracy theories about the attempted assassination of Ronald Reagan. Uh, Although I guarantee you if he had been successful on that day and had killed Reagan, we would have lots of conspiracy theories because that would have been an earth shattering event as opposed to being, you know, a blip in history, a footnote in history about how Ronald Reagan almost got killed uh, on a, on a day early in his, in his uh, administration. Uh, but we want big events to be explained. I mean, it's just it's a natural thing to want to have, and so it's something that we want an answer to and want to have a warranted theory about. Um, and uh, we don't always have them. <laughs> uh, nature does not oblige us in that way all the time. No, and
1: I mean this kind of goes back to a salient point you make in Of Conspiracy Theories, which is unlike nature, which doesn't tend to lie to us about the position of electrons, people lie all the time, and a really effective conspiracy is going to be very well hidden. Indeed, I mean, really, the Moscow Trials only came out because Khrushchev was going. I don't want to be associated with the stuff that Stalin did in his regime. So now that Stalin's dead, it's safe for me to go. Oh, Stalin did bad things like this thing I was totally not involved in, even though I was. So yeah, yeah, you get a whole bunch of of things like that. Where you know, it might be the case there are these massive conspiracies going on. Uh, we just have to cope which is a disturbing thought when you actually think about it. But, you know, unfortunately, that that is our epistemic lim- limitations in a nutshell. Yeah,
2: yeah. the, the only other thing I'd bring up, uh, particularly going back to your concerns about COVID-19 and this kind of perfect storm, another connection back to uh, the creationism uh, and evolution debates is that you're probably familiar with, uh, there was this phenomenon called the Gish Gallop, uh, oh yes, yes where uh in debates uh and i've forgotten his first name was it daniel gish uh, uh, the there was a creationist who would get in debates with with uh people who wanted to argue the evolution side of things and there was a particular uh debating technique that he would have which is he would do the gish gallop which is he would just trot out in his two minute part of his debate you know uh all these different things that uh that you know that were elements that were supposed to support his creationist side of things, but they would be just a whole bunch of different ones just thrown out there. And then the debater, you know, the debate moderator would turn to the, the person on the other side and go, okay, now you're two minutes. And that person would be in this situation where it's like, okay, he, you know, Gish just galloped out 15 different things in two minutes, each of which would take me 15 minutes. I could show you how each and every one of them is wrongheaded not, uh, not, uh, the way that, uh, that you've been led to believe, but I can't do it in two minutes. So it's just like impossible. Right. And then, you know, there would be, you know, as a debating technique, it's a pretty effective debating technique because, you know, it, it does end up leaving your interlocutor looking like, wow, you just can't deal with my, uh, my issues. Uh, and the reason that comes up for me is that I think particularly with COVID 19 and, and what's been going on in just 2020, uh, is that we've kind of gotten a gish gallop at the at the cultural level, you know, between QAnon and uh, and the American election and COVID nineteen, and it's just like it's like it's hard for us to, you know, even if you want to be a debunker of conspiracy theories, there are so many that have just come up and are connected together in all sorts of interesting ways in just the last year that there's this kind of cultural gish gallop of conspiracy theories going on that then uh you know it's like you know these don't have enough time in the day to try to like okay let me explain how 5G works and how even though 5G has a higher frequency than 4G that actually means it has less power i know it says you know higher frequency sounds like it's a bigger thing but actually it's the opposite and you know let me explain some physics to you and and okay now let me go explain some other things about like how microchips don't work that way and okay let me also you know it's like there's just too much to deal with uh the just the same way an audience member who maybe even as an honest you know on, on a member of the audience hears Dwayne gish jot out a bunch of things trot out a bunch of things in his in his two minute part of his speech and go wow those are a lot of interesting ideas I haven't heard before. And the other, the person on the other side isn't really adequately refuting them. Uh, uh, maybe you can't adequately refute them, but it, that that the, the interlocutor isn't. And then at the end of the day, you're left. Well, maybe Gish is on to something. And I feel like, you know, that's kind of the, you know, the situation we're in, at least in the last, I mean, I'm going to be very interested. I know Joe uh, Yusinski has argued that we're not at peak conspiracy theory, that, you know, the numbers were better in uh, the, the height of the Cold War and so so forth. But I'm very curious to think, it's like, hmm, it's gonna be interesting in 10 years from now, when we look back, uh, are we experiencing this spike? Uh, I generally don't like presentism. I don't, I mean, I, I distrust whenever I think my view of the current moment is different from what has come before, uh, especially when it's a time before even I was alive or paying attention. Uh, But I'm going to be very curious to see what the the sociological and and political science studies of the prevalence of conspiracy theories in 2020 are relative to 1999 or 1969.
1: Yes, I must admit, even though I, I spoke with Joe just yesterday about the polling data, and his polling data does seem quite robust in that we're not really seeing any particular growth. I still have that kind of weird anecdotal response of, yeah, but things look very different now than they did 10 years ago. And I accept that Joe's theory that actually there might be a bit of confirmation bias going on there. And I, I think also to a certain extent we might end up being the wrong people to have opinions upon this because we look into
2: these yes. things. So We have Google searches that stuff. pop them up on our screen yeah. every single day. <laughs> yeah.
1: So it looks really prevalent to us because, we, because we've, we've become really highly trained to find this stuff and maybe it turns out that mem- members of the general public aren't suffering from, from this. But I do find it interesting that a year ago, if I mentioned QAnon to people, they'd go, or what? Now when I mention QAnon, they sigh and go, oh, that particular theory. And I, there's a, a litmus test, which I keep on asking people, at what point do your parents ask you, what is QAnon? Now, I have not got to the point where my mother has asked me about QAnon yet, but I'm fairly sure that day is coming, and it's coming soon, and I don't want to have to explain QAnon to my mother, because I know she's just going to say, that just sounds ridiculous. Or at least, I'm hoping that's what she's going to say. I'm dreading a situation where he goes, well, maybe it's true. That explains a lot. Yes, Scary thought, scary thought And with that scary thought I think we shall bring this delightful Interview to a close Thank you very kindly for being on the show Once again Brian
2: well, Thank you very much Em um, uh, Give my best to Josh uh, He's always uh, I always like his, his analyses of things Yours are great but I know you But I never get to, never get to compliment Josh on his I, I enjoy the uh, Enjoy the, the podcast And uh, look forward to uh, your new papers as well
1: Yes, unfortunately, Josh is a
2: poor working
1: schlub and was was in a meeting at this time, so was unable to join us. But one day, one day, we'll get Josh involved as well. So yes, enjoy the rest of your post-apocalyptic afternoon in LA, and we'll talk again soon.
2: Sounds great. Thank you very much.
1: is fast becoming a tradition with the podcasters guide to the conspiracy i had an interview with someone and josh gets to provide commentary and color after the fact so josh what did you think of that discussion with brian Alkeeley? uh
0: well first of all thank you for the kind words brian uh but a bit a bit, bit of positive feedback always strokes the old ego I'll keep this quick because it was a decent length interview, and we don't want to go too over time. Um, One thing, actually, kind of almost uh, unrelated um, to conspiracy theories in general, but the talk about intelligent design and the comparison between conspiracy theories and intelligent design theories sort of struck home for me because in a in in an earlier time when I had a different job with not enough to do and too much spare time on my hands, I did used to spend a fair bit of time reading sort of intelligent design versus evolution stuff on various websites. Um, uh, it didn't help that at the time I was working uh, for a company that actually had a couple of honest-to-goodness creationists on the payroll, and I did have a couple of interesting discussions with them. But the one the one thing uh, that was kind of depressing when it came to looking at the intelligent design versus creationism was how the same disproven arguments just came up again and again and again. It didn't matter how many even if you actually managed to convince a person and get through to one person, the next one would still be rehashing the same things. I remember, the one of my workplace creationists gave me this uh, DVD to watch to see what I thought of it, and it was like all these arguments that had been already thoroughly given a working over, like ten years previously. Old old Michael Behe's uh, irreducible complexity and William Dembski's specified complexity, and these were you know there, there was nothing actually new there, um, and so it was a little bit depressing. And it did did make me wonder. You know, it does actually relating back to conspiracy theories seem to be that this is a um, this is a, a, a possibly a feature of them as well. Um, that you see the same talking points popping up over and over and over, and it doesn't matter. that These have been, you know, there, there's been actual proof that these things aren't true, has been out there. Um, they just keep going and going, and I don't know if that's. Um, when it comes to what it is we want to do about conspiracy theories, you know, how much of a problem is that? Or, or has it just, is it just the way things have always been? I
1: mean, it's an issue which I've been thinking about a lot, especially given the way that we covered Brian's 1999 paper of conspiracy theories, and that I'm actually quite curious about the notion of the mature, unwarranted conspiracy theory. In part because, as I said to Brian, I think Lee and I did him a dirty... With the way that we portrayed his work in our subsequent work, and also for the sheer fact that as someone who is now working on responses to COVID nineteen conspiracy theories in Aotearoa, I'm fairly interested in the way that certain archetypes or conspiracy narratives keep on reoccurring or reappearing in the discourse, and they don't. It doesn't seem to be quite. It doesn't seem to be easy to quash them, or slam Mm. them down. And so I've got this tension between wanting to treat conspiracy theories seriously and also going, look, some of these conspiracy theories are unwarranted. They keep on reappearing. And there's a worry, particularly around the COVID-19 conspiracy theories, that if people believe them or entertain them, they may well engage in behaviors which lead to the spread of COVID-19. And that seems like a clear and present danger at this time. So mm. I'm quite curious to explore this and indeed there's a New Zealand Association of Philosophy conference down in Otago in December of this year and in a seminar in our staff seminar series this afternoon I got the inkling of a paper I might want to present which actually goes back to Keeley and Clark's work and says look maybe we should reappraise the approach that says look there's a class of conspiracy theory where we're allowed to at least be somewhat dismissive or skeptical of them because of their unwarranted status due to them being mature or examples of archetypes that keep on reappearing in the literature and trying to reconcile that with a purely particularist notion, and maybe even bringing in the work of Patrick Stokes, who has the notion of reluctant particularism, something we 'll be getting onto in conspiracy theory masterpiece theater relatively soon
0: mm. and then um the other the other one the thing that stuck out to me listening through your interview was um, Brian talking as he does in his paper about the the erosion of the public trust and how. Um, you know, as he puts it, the problem with some of these conspiracy theories is when you boil down to what they're actually really saying, how much you have to give up. The You know, he, he talks about, you know, so you believe they faked the moon landings. Well, that means, you know, so much of the government, so much of the scientific community, so much of the media must have been in some way in on it um, that you end up being ridiculously sceptical. And yet I look especially these days at... um the sorts of uh, conspiratorial thinking, sort of especially the pro-Trump side in America, when, you know, the the, the whole fake news thing appears to have thoroughly taken hold and people are en- entirely willing to say, actually, yeah, yeah, the, the whole media, the whole media, write them off completely. Um, the anti-science stuff around COVID, people seem to be quite happy to, you know, um, people seem quite happy to throw away just about anything other than the words of the people who they have chosen to believe in no matter what.
1: Josh, Josh, um, what you're talking about here is fake news. You're talking about fake news. You're presenting fake news. People should only listen to me. I'm Donald Trump, or a bad facsimile thereof. And fake news, fake
0: news, fake news. A is guide to the conspiracy putting forward fake news. Fake news. Mm, precisely. And so, yeah, when, so when people have sort of, uh, in some of the papers we've seen, people have taken issue a little bit. With some of the stuff Brian said, and like you know ah, people you know okay okay, maybe for the the really weird existential conspiracy theories th- you would technically have to give away a lot of stuff, but surely not for all of them, but um, that point seems to be a little bit moot when there do seem to be people who are just fully willing to to throw anything out um that they don't feel like indeed, i mean I was reading reading um uh, I think it must have just been something on Twitter or something, an excerpt of, of interviews people that were doing with Trump supporters where they, like, truth just doesn't seem to be in it anymore, They're talking to these people who like, oh, you know, Trump, he's done more for this country than any other president, you know, than the last 10 presidents. He built the wall. He fixed health care. He did all these things that he didn't actually do. The The, 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 the truth just wasn't, you know, was whatever they chose it to be. Or actually um, a good
1: example of that was the interview with Sarah Huckabee oh, see, Sanders. Yeah, yeah. And the way that she was confronted with these are things the president has said which are not true and her response was I actually don't think he said that at all. Okay, so no actually I mean that's literally on the record. We've got recordings of this. You are now denying that your candidate or your employer said things that he did because you'd rather go, well, you know, what is truth? What is truth, Joshua? I'm Ooh, telling you what it is. Precisely. It's fake news put forward by the fake news media. Fake news, fake news, fake news.
0: Mm. Um, yeah, so I think possibly this this the, 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 the possibility for starters of the complete sort of erosion of trust in... in any major institutions, um, it, it seems like you know more and more plausible by the day, and um, and therefore the sorts of harms that can come out of that also seem more plausible. So I wonder if um, the world is is proving Brian right in that in that regard. Um, and then I uh, suppose t- tying those two things together, this the the amount of giving up people have to do to hold on to their beliefs with the intelligent design stuff. I'm i never really wanted to get into it with these people that i worked with because i worked with them and they were lovely human beings you know but um i did like get told that i was the credulous one for believing that that you know a hundred odd years of evolutionary uh, evolutionary theory um was in any way valid but and especially, one of the guys was the tech guy. One of the guys was the dude who's actually designing circuit boards and stuff like that. And I just, I sometimes I did actually want feel like saying, if I really, if I wanted to get into it with him, which I didn't, just, do, do you do you understand that the views that you're saying, like, means we have to take all of science, we just have to take all of science and, and bin it. The science that the technology that you're working on right now is underpinned by is not compatible with these views of yours. But, um I never did that. I probably should have. Would have been interesting to see what they came up with. So
1: there's a famous geologist, I actually should say geophysicist in Australia, who works on uranium deposits. And the uranium deposits in Australia are massively old. And this guy is a young earth creationist. And so there was a book called Telling Lies for God written by Ian Plummer who turns out to be a bit of a problematic individual because Ian Plummer turns out to be a climate change denier. But he writes a really interesting book in Telling Lies for God about the fact that you have a practicing geophysicist who goes around dating mineral ore deposits based upon geological strata and various dating mechanisms. In his day job but by night is a young earth creationist promoting the idea of young earth creationism so not just someone who believes that the earth is about 6 to 10,000 years old is someone who is involved in promoting this and the fact that he doesn't seem to see there's a problem between what he does in the geophysical sciences and what he does as an advocate of young earth creationism because he goes well look i have to subscribe to the notion of an old earth to do my job professionally. But I think the dating mechanisms are wrong and the earth is a lot younger. But I can't say that in academic publications because I'll be laughed out of court. But I don't believe what I say there. I believe what I say in this line over there. And I had a similar thing when I taught at the med school at the University of Auckland. You would meet intelligent design advocates or young earth creationists who would talk in such a way that you'd go, if what you say is true, you can't really believe in the germ theory of disease because the germ theory of disease requires some understanding of evolutionary biology to understand how these things adapt and change over time. But you're going to pretend to believe it for the purposes of getting through a med degree, even though from what you're saying, you actually don't think that's the way the world works at all.
0: Mm. Yes, no, it's a very, it's very strange. But anyway, um, so th- those two things were what I, I found most interesting um, in your talk. But overall, it was, uh, uh, it was just a nice interview to hear, basically talking about the, um, the, uh, the, the history of his works that we've already looked at. So yeah, I have no more to say. And so no more shall be said, except for those people
1: who are our patrons, because we have an exciting patron bonus episode coming up for you. We have an update on the leader of the Russian opposition, who would appear to be alive and graman. We've got warnings about Kiwis being targeted in a grand scale, by a Chinese big data firm. There's the fun and excitement of a Facebook whistleblower who claims to have blood on her hands. We have Roger Stone arguing for armed insurrection, which doesn't really sound particularly unusual. He does that all the time. And an update on New Zealand citizen Peter Thiel, who
0: supports white supremacy. Only that. Yes. So, uh, if you'd like to hear about that and you're a patron, good luck, because you can. Um... If you'd like to hear about that and you're not currently a patron, it's also fairly lucky because you can become a patron quite easily just by going to Patreon.com and searching for The Podcaster's Guide to the Conspiracy.
1: Actually, I want to I w- I want to throw a wrinkle in that. Mm. One of mm. our recent patrons discovered that her bank does not allow giving money to Patreon. Really? Yeah, so it turns hmm. out that the cooperative bank in this country has blocked Patreon Due to a history of fraudulent activity, which we assume, as we've had a conversation about exactly what went on there, is due to, say, the children of parents deciding to subscribe or give money via Patreon, and parents then asking the bank to block those transactions, leading to the bank deciding that actually they're not willing to support Patreon. At this point in time So Hmm. it is possible That as a potential future Patron You may run into issues But luckily there are ways to get around this Such as using PayPal to pay For your Patreon subscription Etc, etc But it turns out it's not as easy
0: As maybe we thought Hmm. Oh well, watch out for that then Um, But at any rate if, if, If you don't actually want to hear about any of that stuff And don't want to be a patron at all Well that's just fine as well um, thank you for listening in any case. Um, so, I believe we're done for this week. Next week we'll be back with something. And if it's if it's uh, an episode of Conspiracy Theory Masterpiece Theatre, it will be quite something, I think it's fair to say.
1: Do you think we should contact the author and ask whether we can do the, the Shakespearean stuff as a kind of live
0: performance? Ooh, I don't know. That might be... That might be it, it, I mean, it actually does require at least three people, unfortunately. Mm, yes, so may, maybe not. I don't know. We can, we can investigate. But anyway, yes, things get Shakespearean. Perhaps that's all we should say for now. Indeed. Um, and that is perhaps all we should say for now. And simply leave these good people with a, a fond goodbye.
1: And I will say, Bill Shakespeare was Bill Shakespeare. True. Listening to the podcaster's Guide to the Conspiracy, starring Josh Addison and Dr. MRX Dentit, which is written, researched, recorded, and produced by Josh and M. You can support the podcast by becoming a patron via its Podbean or Patreon campaigns. And if you need to get in contact with either Josh or M, you can email them at podcastconspiracy at gmail.com or check their Twitter accounts, Mikey Fluids and Conspiracism. And remember, they're coming to get you, Barbara.